Good morning. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. Amen. Can we stand this morning and as we prepare to open the scriptures, we're going to declare our faith together. In the words of the Nicene Creed, 1700 years old, the great statement of the church's faith. Friends, let's say it together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. And he has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We are looking for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And so, Lord, we stand before you this morning, before the God of resurrection, before the one who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, setting him beyond the reach of death forever, who by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is now and will make all things new. <laughs> we could not be more grateful. This morning, we ask that you would dazzle us afresh with the good news that Christ is raised from the dead and that wherever we find ourselves, this morning, whether we are in faith or doubt, whether we are in joy or pain and great agony, that we would find ourselves addressed and comforted by the goodness and the grace and the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We ask that the gospel would be proclaimed in power, and we say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people in the house and worshiping with us online said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It is so good to be here. I, if you get our New Life East weekly email, I mentioned that I have a lot of pent-up Easter energy. We launched New Life East. If you're new to our community, we launched New Life East on Super Bowl Sunday last year. And I was so excited to be able to celebrate Easter with you. And then we were shoved into our basements and living rooms watching online. And I do remember last year watching those services online and we did watch parties and we found a way to be connected. But during those services, man, I just remember 
laying on the floor of our living room, just weeping and crying out to the Lord, saying, Lord, how long will it be before you bring us back together again? So this moment, like this weekend for me, this feels like a death and resurrection moment. It is good to be in the house of God. Can I get an amen from somebody this morning? Easter Sunday has taken on greater and greater significance for me as I've journeyed with Jesus. I do remember Easter Sundays, and maybe you do as well. If you grew up in church when you were a kid, Easter Sunday was the day uh, when, by the way, you all look so nice this morning. Well done on that front, you know, dressing up for Jesus. He's grateful. (laughs) Mandy and I had a conversation about that yesterday. I told Bella, our daughter, to do it for Jesus. You know, paint your nails for Jesus tomorrow. And Mandy was like, does Jesus care about that? He's a human man. Of course he cares about that. But I do remember Easter Sunday when I was a kid. That was the day when your parents stuffed you into clothes that you did not want to wear. Can I get all of the kids in the house to testify for me this morning? Can I get some amen from kids this morning? You know, you didn't want to have to wear a polo this morning, but they let you wear shorts. So it's all good, right? And they stuffed you into clothes that you didn't want to wear. And you went to church and you weren't really super aware of like what was happening. I remember for me as a kid anyway, the resurrection was like, oh, well, neat trick, Jesus. That's cool that you did that. And I guess that that's a thing that we have to believe to be on Team Jesus. You know what I mean? And then you went and you spent the rest of the afternoon at your grandma's house eating ham. And that was like Easter Sunday. Did I get it? Is that it? That's what we all were there. We did that. But as I've grown, as I've walked with Jesus, I think that what I've come to see is that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is, well, it's so much wider and greater and deeper and bigger than just a neat trick that Jesus does. Uh, Listen to Paul's words. This is Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Paul writes that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, that is Jesus, and for him. We're getting a sense already from Paul that there's a cosmic significance to the person of Jesus. Paul writes that Jesus Christ, this man from Nazareth in Galilee that we read about in the Gospels, he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. So we are getting a sense from Paul that Jesus is not just a human man that appeared among us, but somehow his significance is a cosmic significance. And Paul thinks that all things are held together by him, which is a fascinating thought to think, that this man who was crucified by the Romans in about 30 or so A.D. and was raised to life again, that somehow all things are held together in him. All physical things, things in heaven and on earth, somehow the old language for it is they subsist in him. They cohere in him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Paul says that he is the head of the body, the church. Now listen to this. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's interesting that Paul doesn't just say that Jesus came to life again although that is true but Paul says that he is the firstborn from among the dead, all, all the dead. That in Jesus, what we're seeing, according to the mind of the Apostle Paul, 
is the first glimpse of the future that God has planned for his entire good world. Paul says this elsewhere, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, maybe the most robust statement of the meaning of resurrection that we get in the New Testament. Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. There it is again. And he is the first fruits. Everybody say first fruits. So he's the first glimpse, okay? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Guys, what we're seeing in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead isn't just a cool trick that God does, but we are seeing the future that God has dreamed for his world. He is the firstborn from among the dead, which is why Paul concludes his teaching in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying that when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Amen. Brothers and sisters, this morning, this day, that is what we celebrate. The death of death. The defanging of sin and death and the grave. That's what we celebrate this morning. One of the great preachers that the church ever saw, John Chrysostom, 1,600 years ago, in a sermon preached in his church that now every Easter Sunday is read in Orthodox churches around the world. John Chrysostom put our Easter hope like this. He said, let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He destroyed hell when he descended into it. He put it in an uproar, even as it tasted of his flesh. Isaiah foretold this when he said, You, ho hell, have been troubled by encountering him below. Hell was in an uproar because it is done away with. It was in an uproar because it is mocked. It is in an uproar for it is destroyed. It is in an uproar for it is annihilated. It is in an uproar for it is now made captive. Hell, John Chrysostom says, took a body and discovered God. Hell took a body and discovered God. It took earth and it encountered heaven. It took what it saw and it was overcome by what it did not see. Oh, death, Chrysostom says, where is thy sting? Oh, hell, where is thy victory? For Christ is risen and you, O oh, death, are annihilated. Christ is risen and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen and angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life is liberated. Christ is risen and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And the church said, Amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is cosmic in its scope, touches everything. Death is turned on its ear. Yet for all of that, the cosmic nature of resurrection, what astounds me more and more as I journey with Jesus is how intimate and how personal it is when it takes place in the world. Listen to one of the great stories of resurrection from the New Testament 
This is Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. The scripture says, Now that same day, this is the first Easter Sunday, Now that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? The great irony of that, right? Jesus is the only one who really actually knows what's really actually going on. And by the way, that is always true. And we come to him going, do you have any idea what's going on in my life? And he's like, do you have any idea what's going on in your life? But he indulges them. What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our ruler handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this place in addition Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and they told us a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. It's like they just preached the gospel to Jesus. And Jesus is going, and? But he keeps indulging them. He said to them, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. But didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they were approaching the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. They said the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, what did he do? He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he began to give it to them. And then in that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And just then he goes, here's my neat trick. Boom. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us, And then they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. They're going to Emmaus on Easter Sunday. And you know what Luke says? Luke says that Emmaus is seven miles from Jerusalem. Seven is not an unimportant number in the biblical imagination, isn't it? Seven is a number of completeness. It's a number of perfection. So these two disciples, do you know what they're doing? They're fleeing Jerusalem. Jerusalem for them is a place of calling. Jerusalem is a place of purpose. Jerusalem is a place of identity. It's a place where they had history with Jesus. It's a place of hopes. It's a place of dreams. It's a place of expectations. Think about what they said. We had hoped that this one would be the one 
who would redeem Israel, lead us into the future that God has for us. But apparently that's off the table now. Don't you understand what happened? And so Jerusalem then also represents a place of failed hopes and failed dreams and failed expectations. And for them to be heading to a city that is seven miles from Jerusalem means they're trying to get the complete distance away from that place of grief and away from that place of pain. That experience is not so uncommon to us, is it? Most of the time in our lives, we find ourselves in some way, shape, or form running away from those places that are a great grief and a great disappointment and a great frustration to us. We're trying to flee the scene of the crime. We're trying to flee the place where it feels like there was breakdown, where there's pain, where there's agony. We want to go back to Emmaus. Emmaus to me represents a place that's safe. Emmaus to me is a place of cheap comfort. It's a place of cheap consolation. That's where they're walking. And who is it that comes and visits them on the road? It's Jesus himself. And he doesn't rebuke them and he doesn't chastise them and he doesn't get all up in their face. What he does is he finds them in their grief and he finds them in their pain and he finds them in their isolation. He finds them right in the place where it feels like everything has fallen apart and he begins to ask them to tell the story and that's what they do. They start laying out the facts of their heartbreak before the Lord. Don't you know what happened in Jerusalem in these days? Don't you know what happened to Jesus of Nazareth, they say? He was this prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all of the people and our chief priests and our rulers, they handed him over to be sentenced to death. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They lay out all of the facts of their story. And what I find so fascinating about this narrative is that Jesus doesn't challenge or change any of the facts of their narrative. He doesn't say to them, well, no, 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 it doesn't, that, you don't really understand, it didn't really happen that way. Well, no, 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 nor does he rush them through it. Well, y'all just need to get over it, you know, I mean, Jesus was a pretty cool guy, but there's a good future in store for you. No, he doesn't do that. He just listens to the facts of the story, but he doesn't leave them with the facts of the story as they understand those facts, does he? But what he does is he takes the facts of their story in all of their pain and all of their isolation and all of their hurt and all of their heartbreak, he takes the facts of their story and he situates those facts inside the greater narrative of Scripture and he puts the great fact, capital F, of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead over and above all of the facts of their story, taking their story and putting it inside the wider fact of God's story. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to suggest to you this morning that that is what Easter Sunday is. That Easter Sunday is an invitation to set the facts of our story inside the great fact that Christ is risen from the grave. That's what we're here for. And I don't know what facts you're holding in your story this morning. I don't know what kind of relationship breakdown you've experienced that feels like it's the end of the tale. And I don't know where your marriage is at and how it feels like that's the end of the story. I don't know where it's at with your kids. I don't know what's going on with those dreams and hopes that you have for your job or for your business or for some enterprise. I don't know what you're holding. I don't know what pain in your body you're holding. I don't know that. I don't know what kind of financial hardship you're holding. But what I do know 
is that Easter Sunday is the announcement that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the great fact over and above and around and underneath and beyond and inside of all of the facts of our story. The thing that is most true about you, the thing that is most true about me, the thing that is most true about the world that we live in is that Christ is risen and the church said, he is That's the truest true in our world. One of the great theologians of the church, Robert Jensen, put it like this way, that the gospel is the story of Jesus told as a promise over our lives. The gospel, let that sink in. The gospel is the story of Jesus told as a promise over our lives. Do you want to know where your life is going? Look at the gospel. Look at the story of Jesus. Christ is raised from the dead. That's your truth. That's my truth. And the truth of this came home to me, I think for the first time and in the most profound way, in a way that changed my life many years ago. I was an associate pastor, young guy, fresh out of seminary, and I got a call to go visit a woman in the hospital, she's part of our church. This woman had been through an incredibly difficult season. Her body ex- ma- experienced this massive sort of collapse of her internal organs. The doctors couldn't really put their finger on what was happening. She was in and out of the hospital, and it would seem like at times that she was turning the corner, and then she wouldn't. She'd wind up back in the hospital again. And when I got the call to visit her, she was under 100 pounds, wasted, down to her crazy bones. This disease, whatever she was going through, had eaten her down almost to nothing. And I remember sitting by her bedside in a hospital room, and she's got tears in her eyes. And this was a woman of great faith. She'd walked with God for a long time, and she's got tears in her eyes. And I remember her looking at me and saying to me, Andrew, I just don't understand. Where is God in this? Like I've experienced great victory and I've experienced great triumph in my life and I've seen God move in amazing ways, but here I am now at the very threshold of death with this thing going on in my body that I don't understand. Andrew, where is God in this? And I'm 25, 26 years old, fresh out of seminary, and I'm scraping my the recesses of my brain, trying to think like, what can I say to this woman that would be a comfort to her? And I'm looking at her and she is right on the very doorstep of death. And I've got no words. I've got no answers for her. And I'm sitting by her bedside, tears in her eyes, tears in my eyes, holding her hand, looking for answers. And I remember looking at the opposite wall. And we were in a Catholic hospital and there was a crucifix on the wall. And on the Catholic crucifix, as you know, the body of Jesus is still there. The wounded bleeding, mangled body of Jesus is there. And all of a sudden it clicked into place for me. That when you ask the question inside human pain and grief and suffering, where is God in this? God is in exactly that place of pain and grief and suffering. And it finally locked into place for me because when I was a kid, we always used to say that by the wounds of Jesus, by his wounds, we are by his wounds we are healed. And what that meant is that somehow Jesus experienced 
something over here that released life back to us. And while I believe that that is true, in a deeper sense, by his wounds we have been healed, what that means is that Jesus in his own body has not just tasted of human pain so that he can have sympathy for it in some like, hey, bucko, I've been through it kind of sense. But that what he's done is he's actually taken the woundedness of humanity into his body and made it his body. He's integrated it into his life so that as this woman, Lisa was her name, as Lisa is sitting there with her body being eaten, I'm looking up at Jesus with his wounds and I'm going, this body is his body and that body is her body. Jesus has taken our bodies into himself and made those bodies part of his life. And that one who died was also raised to life again. That that life that is in God is the indestructible reality beneath and beyond all of the destruction and death that we experience in our world. So that the deepest truth of Lisa's body right there is that Christ who took her body into himself also has been raised up from the grave so that she has nothing to fear in life or in death. And I remember holding her hand that day and saying to her, Lisa, do you see Jesus over there? But you ask the question, where is Jesus in this? Where is God in this? And I answer, he is here. He is now. He is Emmanuel. He is for you deeper than you could ever possibly know. And we both broke down and we wept. I lost track of Lisa. We moved shortly thereafter, helped some friends plant a church in Denver, and I lost track of her story. And one Eastertide, this was back in 2012, 2013 maybe, I was preaching up at our church in Denver. It was maybe the fourth or the fifth Sunday of Easter. And I'm preaching on the hope of resurrection life. And as I'm going for it, just preaching my guts out, I look on the back row. And do you know who's sitting on the back row of our church in Denver? Lisa. Nearly knocked me completely off my game in the middle of my sermon, you know. And I remember taking us to communion and finishing up the message and racing back there, making a beeline to Lisa. When I looked at her, she was ruddy and healthy. She looked great. I said, Lisa, I've told that story of us sitting in the hospital room over and over and over again. That was like a revelation moment for me. And now to see you here, what has been going on? She said, Andrew, since that moment, the Lord has systematically put my life back together. He put my health back together and my body back together and relationships back together. And now I'm living up in the mountains and I've got this amazing job and I've got a community and I've got, I've got all of the things that the enemy was taking away from me. Jesus Christ has restored them. Brothers and sisters, that's what we celebrate. That our lives are hidden with Christ in God and that no power of hell and no scheme of man could ever pluck us from his hand. We're in him. And the truth of the matter is that even if Lisa's life had ended in that hospital room that day, still the deepest truth about her, the deepest truth about me, the deepest truth about our world is that Christ is risen from the grave. Her life, my life, your life, they are hidden with Christ in God, which means that our future is secure. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He said, 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But Paul says, no, 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 no. We're not just wandering through life as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us. (laughs) Nothing can separate us. We belong to him. We belong to him. And I don't know what you're going through this morning. And I don't know how heartbreaking and awful it is. I don't know how painful it feels to you. But what I know is that the gospel is the story of Jesus told as a promise over your life. Which leads me to the last thing that I want to say. And with this, we're going to start making our way to communion. That it might not be when I think about this last year that we've been through. It might be that the most painful thing that you've been through is not circumstantial. But the most painful thing that you have been through in this past year is the way that this year has challenged your idea of God and many of your expectations about who God is and who he's supposed to be have been fundamentally challenged by the difficulty that you've walked through. And that, I think, is the deepest pathos of this text in Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look down, back down at verse 19. Jesus asks them, what they've been through. What things, he asks. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since this took place. And he said to them, verse 25, how foolish you are, And how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Do you know what the deepest pain was for them? It wasn't just that they lost their friend. It was that their whole notion of God had crumbled. Their whole notion of God. They lost their faith. The Messiah died. God died in their minds. And Jesus, wouldn't you know it, comes up and walks along with them and says, why don't you tell me about the death of God in your mind? Why don't you come and tell me about your loss of faith? Why don't you come and tell me about how you can't believe anymore? Why don't you come and tell me about how now you're going to go off and seek a new religion or solace and some other thing? Why don't you tell me about all of that? And what I'm going to tell you is that I live on the other side of the collapse of your faith. I live on the other side of your death, the death of your idea of God. I still live. And I'll actually, if you'll let me, I'll take even your idea of the death of God and I'll integrate it into resurrection life so that it now is part of a mature and ongoing faith and your witness to the world. Brothers and sisters, if you walk with Jesus long enough, your idea of God will die many times over. 
And I'm saying that as one who has walked with Jesus for almost 40 years. My idea of God has died many times over. Loss of hope, loss of dream, loss of expectation. God, I thought you were supposed to. God, it wasn't supposed to go this way. God, everybody told me that you were like this, and it turned out that you were otherwise. And I'm here to say to you this morning that every single time I have found myself in that place where God died in my mind, do you know who was right there? The resurrected one. On the other side of every collapse of faith, inviting me to trust again. That's the invitation this morning to take all of our shattered hopes and dreams and expectations and ideas and place them at the feet of Jesus, to yield them to him. Which leads me to the last thing I want to say, and then with this, we're going to communion. Verse 30. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, He took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he began to give it to them and then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. The moment that changes everything begins with an act of hospitality. They welcome him in. He changes the room and opens their eyes to the truest truth about their existence. That's the invitation to us this morning. Can we stand here now? And I don't know where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you're in here and faith is strong in you and hope is strong in you. And if so, that's wonderful. And you may find yourself in here this morning watching online. And it has just been a year that has kicked the living daylights out of you. And your faith is in tatters and you don't know how to make sense of it all. And it might be that you're here this morning with us or you're watching online and you have never put your trust in Jesus before. So wherever you find yourself this morning, would you just open your hands now and begin to welcome the Lord Jesus in? We're all going to do it together. And Jesus, we say that we welcome you this morning. We welcome you into every painful relationship. We welcome you into every shattered hope. We welcome you into every shattered dream, every broken expectation. We welcome you into it all. We welcome you into the absence of faith in our hearts. We welcome you into all the dark places of our lives. We welcome you, Lord Jesus. We welcome you into what we take for granted as our stories. Then we lay them at your feet. And we're asking that your light and your love and your truth and your hope, your presence would flood in that you would awaken faith in us perhaps for the first time, that you would awaken hope in us perhaps for the first time, and that you would fill our hearts with the love that comes from knowing that we are loved to the uttermost. Grant that we are asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people in the house and worshiping with us online said, Amen. And now the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, He took the bread and he broke it. Can we hold up the bread together? Can we recognize the resurrected one in this moment, this morning? And now let's take that bread and all over this room, let's break it together. This is my body, Jesus said, broken for you. Do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. Can we take the bread together?
Thank you, Jesus. Broken for our transgressions, punished for our iniquities. And the chastisement of your peace that brought us peace was upon you. And by your wounds, we have been healed. We acknowledge that this morning. And after the supper, he took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, the life is in the blood. And Jesus pours out his blood for the life of the world. As we come to this moment, we are receiving the life of God in our bodies, the cup of salvation. Let's take it together this morning. And now can we get, begin to give God thanks for all that he is and all that he has done. We say, thank you, Lord Jesus. We yield our hearts to you and our lives to you again. And we offer up worship and thanks and praise and thanksgiving to the one who was and is and is to come, the risen one. Hallelujah. And the church said, amen. Can we respond with this song of worship this morning? And I searched the world. Couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures of faith never enough. But you came along and put me back together, and every desire is now satisfied. Here in your love, oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you. Whoa. Sing that this morning. Oh, there's nothing. 
That's who our God is, amen? He's so good. Join me as we sing the doxology. Thank you, Lord. And praise God from whom blessings Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Would you lift up your hands and receive this benediction as you go? May the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him. Would you do that today? Put all of your trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'll invite our altar ministry team to come forward this morning. If you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray with you. Remember, if you're new, we've got a gift for you at Connect Central. Sign up for Alpha. Join us next week for baptisms. Christ is risen. We'll see you next Sunday.